You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Once you have your Bible, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to John 13, 1 through 17. John 13 uh, is uh, where we'll be this morning. As I said, we start the second uh, section uh, in uh, John's Gospel. And if you're a book, a Bible bookmark kind of person, leave your uh, bookmark in here because uh, uh, every Sunday through this fall, we're just going to take uh, section after section in uh, God's Word uh, right here. And so as you're finding it now, uh, uh, let me just uh, share a story uh, with you. Not long ago, uh, as Aaron, my wife and I, as we were leaving on a trip, we uh, sat down with our kids before we left uh, around the dinner table and we uh, tried to prepare them for our time away as we were headed away for a few days and now they had you know other adults taking care of them our kids are 11 8 and 2 so we didn't just leave them at home by themselves for multiple days but as we uh, were leaving we wanted to prepare them and lay out the expectations for how they should behave and what they could do while we were were gone and uh, and to remind them of their responsibilities you know to take care of one another and you know nothing really new or out of the ordinary like you have to get dressed every day you can't just wear your jammies as you go to school and all that you have to brush your teeth and treat one another kindly and you can call us at uh, any time as uh, or FaceTime with us if you if you want we were preparing them as they leave and John 13 through 17 really recounts a very similar type supper Uh, it recounts a a time in, in Jesus life much more profound in its significance obviously than what Aaron and I were doing there as uh as Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure This section of scripture is commonly referred to as the upper room discourse. As Jesus takes his disciples there and these chapters record for us his final encouragements and expectations for his disciples. And in chapter 17, it concludes with this really profound prayer that lays open Jesus' heart for his his church, for his followers. And so uh, what we have been in up to this point in chapters 1 through 12 are really all of Jesus' public ministry, his uh, work and his words, his teaching over those three years across Jerusalem and uh, the Galilee region. And in every moment, he's inviting people to come and believe that he is the Son of God. He is the long-awaited Savior of the world. And now all of that is over. Jesus is just hours, really, from his uh, arrest and then eventual crucifixion and resurrection. And now that's that's over, he has his disciples gathered for one final meal and, and some final instructions for them. And of all the things that he could have said, of all the reminders he could have given them, these chapters are what he leaves with his disciples and therefore us uh, with to lead us in what we are to expect and following him for his hour has finally come to depart out of this world. Now, with that in mind, let's go to the text, and I want to read it for us. You follow along in your Bible, and I'm going to read John 13, just 1 through 17. Those verses, not all five chapters, just those verses in John 13. Follow along here. Say this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, 
When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is God's word for God's people. Now write this down, church, in your notes. At the center of this opening moment in the upper room is this central expectation. We should expect a life of service like Jesus. Expect a life of service like Jesus. As I said, Jesus is about to leave, and so he lays out uh, these expectations, as we'll discover in the coming chapters, about what life and following Jesus is truly like. And so here, as he begins this, uh, as uh, supper is beginning and the disciples are gathering, this is the opening expectation for all who would follow Jesus as we read this. And now this is not a new lesson for the disciples. It is not as though now Jesus is gathering his disciples for dinner and laying on them some new novel concept about what life is like. For he had demonstrated this for the last several years to his disciple and taught on it multiple times. Matthew records a few of them even for us. Here's just a couple examples on the screen. Matthew 23, 11 and 12. He said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And in that teaching, that passage, what Jesus is doing is he's really redefining greatness. 
redefining what it means to serve and how we have influence amongst God's people. Even before this, Matthew 20, 25 through 28, uh, 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 Jesus teaches this lesson again on the screen. But Jesus called them to him, that's his disciples, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now he's saying the Gentiles is like everybody else. What is the worldly custom is those who have authority lorded over their subjects. But he says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now in this teaching, Jesus is really setting the standard of sacrificial service. He's teaching us how to lead, how to love the people around us. And here again now, Jesus returns to this same lesson in his final meal with the twelve. He's poured his life into them uh, over these last several years. He is, he's taught them through his life and through his words. And now he, what he is, he's coming back to this. And even as we examine his words and his actions in this passage, it, it shows us then how, how we are to serve like Jesus. For, write this down as well, serving like Jesus involves our entire being. As we examine the verses, which we're going to do as we go here, we're going to look at it more closely, but I'll just submit this to you. Serving like Jesus involves our entire being, from our head to our heart and to our hands. The way that we understand things, the affections that we feel, and the actual deeds that we do with our hands or with our bodies. See, serving just isn't about the deeds that we do. Right? The meals that we make, the tables that we wipe, the floors that we sweep, the kids that, that, that we teach. No, serving like Jesus flows from our entirety of our being, from our head to our heart to our hands. And this is what really sets Christ-like service apart from any of the, the, just the nice things that even unbelievers do to help one another out. But it involves the entirety of us. And we see this in Jesus' example in this section. See, if it involves our entire being, here's what we learn from the first few verses is that it flows from a heart of steadfast love. Write that down. It's there in your notes. It's point number one. It starts here with this, and it flows from a heart of steadfast or sacrificial love. As we've seen uh, in recent weeks of the steadfast love of God for us that endures forever in every situation, as we understand the love of God, this then sets us uh, forward in our love for one another. And I love how this, uh, this chapter begins. It begins here, just look at it in verse 1. It begins there, the scene is set with a, with a time stamp. Again, we're at a feast, a Jewish festival that the people of Israel would uh, have celebrated in that day. And if you remember through our study of John all through this last year, uh, many of the important moments in Israel's history and many of the important moments that John records are in conjunction with these feasts. It's kind of taking them and, and turning them on their head and showing the fulfillment and the completeness in Jesus. And now uh, we learn that we're at the Feast of, of Passover. If you're unfamiliar with what that was all about, it was a, an, an annual commemoration of Israel's deliverance from Egyptian slavery. 
read about the events in the book of Exodus, the second book of our Bible. If you go back, if you flip through uh, your Bible to the very beginning of Genesis and then Exodus, and it recounts these, uh, these events when they actually uh, happened, when they were set free, when uh, God's people were uh, enslaved in, in Egypt and, and God sent Moses to set them free and Pharaoh would have none of it. And so God uh, sent these great and grievous judgments upon uh, the, the, the land in those days, demonstrating his power and, uh, and his grace to call people to himself. And those, uh, those judgments conclude with the killing of the firstborn. As any of us who were in, alive in those days and people, if you were the firstborn in your family, as the angel of death worked its way through the, through the land there, uh, that, that, on that appointed evening, they're gone. Except for those that took a lamb killed it, and then took its blood and put it over their doorpost of their house. So that way, as the angel of death passed its way through, it would pass over your house. And after that, obviously, uh, there was great wailing and grief throughout the land, and, and Pharaoh finally relented and set the people of Israel free, and they, uh, they, they actually pay them, they give them all their gold and treasure, and they take off into the land, and Pharaoh has a whole, uh, you know, kind of change of mind and sends his army after him in the Red Sea and all those uh, awesome things that you read about in the book of Exodus. But in Jesus' day, where we're at now, is that uh, when the Jewish people are coming now to the temple to commemorate that, where they would take their lambs, they would be uh, slain, and uh, it would, they would gather for supper together and reenact what happened. Uh, on that day and remember what happened. And so that's what's happening. Uh, it, Jerusalem at this point is a, a, a buzz with activity in celebration for this, this, culturally speaking. And so we understand this, but there's an even more important timestamp other than just the Jewish calendar that happens here in verse 1. For not, look at what it says here. Now, before the peace feast of the Passover, Jesus, when Jesus knew that is our had come. Now this, if you remember throughout John's gospel, has also been a hint dropped for us in multiple chapters, leading us to this point, getting us to expect an hour, a time that Jesus had come for. We first learn of it in chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana. If you remember that, when Jesus turns the water to wine and he said his hour had not yet come at that, that point. And then again in chapter 7 at the Feast of the Booths, as his brothers and his disciples were urging him to go to Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And, and Jesus is like, my hour has not yet come. And he says that multiple times in that chapter. And then just a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 12 and Pastor Eric was preaching that, now it's like, Jesus is like, okay, my ministry is coming to an end. My public works and word ministry is coming to an end for his hour has come. And now in chapter 13, it is like the hour is here. The hour for what? Well, just look what the words say. To depart out of this world to the Father. His earthly ministry is finished. The mission for which he came uh, was about to be fulfilled on the cross, and Jesus knows this. Repeated multiple times in our text today, three different times and all throughout John, is we are just, uh, John leaves no doubt in our mind that Jesus knows exactly what is happening. He knew now that his hour had come, that he was to depart. He knows it all, even when we don't. Like, if we knew our hour, right? 
If somebody, somehow we knew, hey, you just have a few hours to live, the last few hours of our life would probably be lived very differently. We would try to, you know, tackle as many bucket list items as we could. And yet Jesus is here. He knows. And what does he do? He loves. Having loved his own. Who does he love? His own who are in the world, his disciples, his followers. And to what extent does he love them? He loves them to the to lay us, to, to, to fulfill, to uh, fully or completely here. Not like he loved them to the finish line, but he loves them fully, completely, all the way through their lives. It's just another way to say the anthem that we saw on repeat through the Old Testament, his steadfast love endures forever. But how does he prove it, Redemption. It's one thing to say, I'll love you forever, baby, right? Many say at their, uh, in the, you know, at their wedding or in their, you know, at the, in, through the ceremony, I'm going to love you forever. But then life happens, struggles happen, finances, sickness, the unexpected things happen, and then that love is put to the test, is it not? And so how does he prove it? There's a couple things in the passage, I think. First, he allows it, or he, he shows us by allowing his betrayer to remain close to him. It's during supper, he loves them to then. During supper, and we get this uh, little, uh, this, this drop. And during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And we've seen this all along throughout the, uh, the book of, uh, of John, have we not? Every time Judas is mentioned, it, we, it is made sure and it is put right out there that this is the one we know that is going to betray him. As he's introduced in chapter 6, right, at the feeding of the 5,000, he is introduced. We're like, where did this guy come from? And all he was just told that he's a betrayer. Again, in chapter 12, verse 4, when Mary is anointing Jesus' feet, Judas is mentioned, and we're told he's going to be the one who betrays. And now here he is again amongst Jesus' inner circle, amongst the 12, receiving his love and his service. And John, who is also there as the disciple, is not just like tattling on Judas, He's the guy who, you know, who did this. But he is making sure that we know that Jesus knows what Judas was going to do before it even happened. He knows what's in Judas' heart. He knows what the devil had put there. He knows, and even the worst betrayal doesn't diminish Jesus' love and service for his disciples. For up till this, Israel had had a long history of abandonment and rebellion and betrayal of, uh, of the Lord and, and, and abandoned his ways. And even now, we're given a glimpse into the heart of God through Jesus. It's as if we're, we can peel back the cover of Jesus' heart and see his love, a love for his own that compels him to serve them and to eventually lay down his life for them. And I wonder if the same could be true of us, if we could peel back, you know, so to speak, if we could peel back the cover of our own heart, what we would find, especially when it comes to our service of God's people. 
especially when it, when it, when it comes to, uh, to, uh, to serving and loving in a, in a selfless, sacrificial, or steadfast way. Are our hearts ordered to Christ? Are we serving in a Christ-like way out of love for God and love uh, for others? Or is it disordered? You know, the last several weeks we've been looking at this, the steadfast love of God enduring forever. First Thessalonians 4, we saw the command last week to love one another and to excel even still more and more in so, in loving God and loving others. And so as, as, if we were to peel back the, the cover of our heart, would we find an ordered heart or a disordered heart? One that is motivated by love or one that is motivated by one of these three disorders just on the screen here this is an exhaustive but is our heart and specifically our heart and service motivated by a love of recognition where we serve only so that others can see how awesome i am so that others could know how talented or gifted or intelligent i am that's why we serve because we love to be recognized or or maybe it's disordered in this way that we just desire reward i'll serve so that they will serve me as well i'll come over and help in this way i'll watch your kids so that you can watch my kids next week and we just desire the reward where we get something in return maybe it's disordered because we're self-righteous where our service is just motivated by a desire uh, to, to earn God's favor. Where we think, if I do enough good things, if I, if I do uh, serve in this way over and over, God will love me. I can earn my way into heaven. God will see me and bless me, and then I will get the things that I want. Maybe not. Maybe it's... You peel back the layers of your heart and you're like, it's not this, but it's something else. But I think our heart of love or the heart of in our service is revealed primarily in the who we serve. In the who, see, Jesus loved and served even his betrayer. And you may not have a Judas in your life. Somebody that you already know at this point is going to be the death of you. Hopefully not. If you do, then let's, let's talk, let's counsel, let's help you through that. And you may not have a Judas, but you likely have somebody in your life that has nothing to offer you in return or to repay you. You likely have somebody in your life where there is a high risk of being hurt or taken advantage of. And I'm not advocating just putting ourselves into uh, unhealthy or hurtful situations but these you know it could be your kids it could be your roommates it could be a competitive co-worker or a you know an unpleasant neighbor it might even be your spouse it may, you, you may be even just the thought of serving your spouse where you are so hurt from just years maybe even decades of just painful words and biting comments and just a back and forth that has never seen uh, to change that the thought of just serving him or her is really actually it's just unthinkable but you know what jesus knows who's in your life he knows how you uh, can serve them and don't miss this, that Jesus knew who was around the table when he did the unthinkable. 
Jesus knew who was around the table when he did the unthinkable, when he rose up from supper, removed his outer garments, and stooped down to wash feet. Thus teaching us how to serve. Thus showing us that, that, that serving it involves our entire being isn't just merely a, out of a heart of steadfast love, but it actually involves putting our hands into selfless uh, action. It involves putting our hands into selfless action. And that's what we discover here in verses 4 through 11. It, you know, you, you see it here. It's, it's pretty self-explanatory. We don't need a picture drawn for us. But he, Jesus, he, he rises up, takes off his outer garments. He wraps a towel around, pours water into a basin. And one by one, the disciples come and he washes each of their feet. And the cultural significance of what Jesus is doing here is astounding. It's, it's, this is the, the role of the lowest servant, so much so that I don't think we have like a comparative uh, a job within our own culture. There's nothing really synonymous to this here. This was the job of the lowest of the low service, uh, servants. For Just imagine how filthy the, the people's feet were in those days. You know, all you had, really your only footwear, if you had any footwear, if you didn't walk around barefoot, were just some thin sandals. And they didn't have nice pavement and roads and sidewalks and things uh, to walk on. But you walked through the dirt and the mud of the, uh, of the earth. And as you were in town, you would walk through streets that also doubled as the sewer, as the landfill for your own household trash and refuse would just get tossed out into the street. And any animals that you had or animals passing by, sheep or donkeys or whatever else it was, would leave all their refuse behind as well. And so as you made the trip over to dinner at somebody else's house, guess what your feet would be like? Pretty unpleasant. And so the role of washing somebody's feet and washing all that filth off was regulated to the lowest servant on the totem pole. No self-respecting human would do this. But who is the one washing the feet in this passage? It's Jesus. Who is whom? The Son of God, the long-awaited Savior, the one who we've seen affirmed time after time throughout John's gospel, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the King of Israel. His condescension in this chapter is really incomprehensible. Paul captures this in Philippians 2, a sense of it, and even urging our own serving like Jesus. Look at this. It's on the screen. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. He tells us to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Think about this. Get this. He says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. He was fully God, fully man. But that didn't keep him at the throne. It wasn't like he was gripping onto the throne of heaven. He's like, I'm not letting this go. There ain't no way you're sending me to heaven or sending me to earth and I'm leaving heaven. No, he empties himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, the Son of God, lowers himself, putting his hands into selfless action. The very hands that formed each of these disciples are now washing the filth 
from their feet. And as this is happening here, things take an interesting, even a startling turn as Peter is unsettled by this in verse 6. Do you see it there? All of it's happening. Gotta love Peter, right? Disciple, the, the, you know, kind of the appointed leader of the, of the 12 who God will do uh, pretty, you know, incredible things in the birth of the church after this. But in verse 6, like, Peter's incredulous about this, right? Like, Lord, do you wash my feet? It's like, this, this, what, what, are, what are you doing? You can't do this. This is just like uh, frying every socially acceptable wire that is, that is going on in his, you know, in his board. You know, he can't do this. The cultural standards say one of them, one of them should have been the one who did it. One of them should have been the ones as they came. Whoever was lowest should have done this. And, and he's incredulous, but don't you like Jesus just replies so patiently, doesn't he? Like what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Jesus is just so patient as he always is. We don't always understand in the moment, do we? Maybe you've had times like that in your own life. You're going through something, and, uh, and, and you know you don't necessarily have the audible words of Jesus, but you just know, okay, I don't understand why I'm going through this trial. I don't understand why there's this, you know, this tension in this relationship. I don't understand why things are changing like this. And, and you're just reminded by God's Spirit, you know what, you don't understand now, but one day you will. And maybe that's been true of you. Maybe years or even decades on your road, like, ah, now I know I won't do that. Now, now I can see what God was doing there. And Peter doesn't understand it now. He will later, you know. We've probably had that even just on a human level. Like we've had, probably had parents or teachers in our own life who taught us some lessons. We didn't fully understand it now. And, and then years later, you're like, ah, that's why my dad said that. That's what that teacher was referring to then and so Jesus is just so patient. And yet Peter doesn't even get it. He like doubles down, doesn't he? Right? Do you see it? He's like, verse 8, Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. In Greek, it's a double negative. Like, you ain't never going to never wash my feet. I'm not, I'm not going to let you do it. He doubles down. And then Jesus gets pretty serious, right? Goes from patient to serious. And Jesus is like, hey, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Whoa. That's the next level. He's getting serious. And so, of course, Peter now, like, sobers up a little bit. He understands, all right, well, Lord, you know, it's like extremist Peter. It's like, okay, then not just my, my feet, but also my hands and my head. Like, let me just jump into the bath, right? It was extremist Peter. He's an all-or-nothing kind of guy to which Jesus, again, takes a teachable moment. Let's love Jesus' example here. But he uses that at a teachable moment to illustrate our justification and our sanctification. He's like, you don't need uh, to be fully washed. You're already clean. Right? You just need your feet, but not every one of you here. Right? And then just to kind of contextualize it, you know, he's like, you don't, if, like in the morning, if you wake up and you take a shower and then you go and prepare breakfast and your hands get contaminated because of the raw meat or whatever you're using, do you need to go back and uh, take another shower to clean your hands? No, you just need to wash your hands. You don't have to go take another shower. And so to here... They just needed their feet washed after walking through the house. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, just says this. Well, listen to this. He says, uh, when one had bathed and then walked to another's house, he only needed his feet washed in order to be clean. But as justified believers, 
the disciples did not need a radical new cleansing, but rather a daily cleansing from the contaminating effects of sin, end quote. See, as followers of Jesus Christ, at the moment of our salvation, we are what is known in you know, theological circles as being justified, declared right with God in the courtroom of God because of what Jesus has done. Once and final proclamation over our life, praise be to God. Are you in Jesus Christ today? If you place your faith, then you are justified. You have been declared righteous because of what Jesus uh, has done on your behalf. And yet, we still live in this sinful world. We still sin. Therefore, God, in his sanctifying work, continues his work on us as we say no to sin and yes to the things of God. And so that is what he's getting at here and using Peter. Hey, 11 of you are clean. 11 of you are justified. But one is not. Again, referring to Judas. He knows that. That's why he has it out here, just in case we forget. And the whole interaction here, the back and forth as what Jesus is teaching, really brings to light two takeaways about our service. Just write these down. They're here on the screen. Nobody is, is too good to serve. I think that should be blatantly obvious from Jesus' example here. If Jesus serves, we must as well. For none of us are better than Jesus. Nobody is above uh, Jesus. If he would serve uh, in the lowest spot, so too we. We're just joyful floor sweepers. Joyful foot washers with whatever responsibility God may give us, with whatever giftings God gives us, with whatever passions God gives us in the serving of God's people and its many forms. We're just joyful. So none of us, nobody are too, none of us are too good to serve. It's not as though we mature in our Christian faith and we attain to this place of like Christian nobility to where we're so mature in the faith that we no longer are obligated to serve. If anything is true, it is the exact opposite of that. Nobody is too good to be served. But also, uh, uh, there's a secondary point here. Nobody is too good or too bad to be served. It's uh, just like, consider what the... who Jesus is talking to and what's here. Like, nobody's too good, nobody's too bad to be served. Not self-righteous Peter, nor the scallywag Judas, Right? And, and maybe uh, you, or like me, or just, you know, humanity, I think some of us, if we've been walking with the Lord for a long time, we're, we're prone to this self-righteousness that rejects others' help because we don't want to appear needy. Where we, in those moments of, of, of weakness, when we're struggling with sin or we're weighted down with the responsibility of life or we're suffering through grief or things, and our, our self-righteousness uh, keeps us from, from just taking advantage of the means of grace that God has given us. It keeps our mouth closed when we should be sharing these things with our small group or with the people around us and being truly transparent. But we, uh, but we don't because we want to uphold this veneer of like su- spiritual superiority. But nobody's too good in their own way of thinking, to be served. And Jesus has a, has a way of rooting this out of us, doesn't he? 
through trials, through things that happen. He's very patient with us in the same way he's patient with Peter. You don't understand it now. You may not understand the heaviness. You may not understand all this, but I'm doing something here. But let us also not uh, uh, miss the warning. We must heed the warning. If we don't, if we don't, then if we, he does not wash us, then we have no share with for we would be rejecting the means of grace that God has put in our life, the people around us, his word uh, before us, the things that that God has given us to grow, to succeed, and to mature in Christ. We can't just proudly uh, neglect or reject even his grace and the help that he has ordained for us. But on the flip side of that as well is nobody is too bad to be served. There's nobody that God has put into your life that's like, you know what? They've done too much bad things to, to be of help. You know, they just keep failing. They just keep, you know what? They've, this, I, I, there's no, nothing more can be done from them. They're just too bad. And yes, there is a point. There are things that we do that maybe enable sin. We, we can't do that. But Jesus is here serving Judas. Jesus is here uh, washing the feet of his very betrayer. There's nobody too bad to be served. Maybe that's the feelings that you have in your own heart right now. You're thinking, you know what, if you actually knew, Blair, what I've done, the sin that I've committed, the hidden things that are going on in my life or the egregious things that, that are in my rearview mirror, I, I, I'm beyond help. I am beyond serving. I don't deserve to have anybody wash my feet. My sin d- disqualifies me from this kind of service. That's you today. Let me just assure you, no, it's actually our sin that qualifies us to be served. It is our, their sin is the only thing that we bring to the salvation equation. Jesus invites us in to be washed. This is the hope of the gospel. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to try to wash your own feet or clean your own own body and then present yourself to Jesus. No, Jesus says, come, I will wash you. This is what he accomplished on the cross. And as he rose from the dead, that we too might be cleansed from our sin. See, Jesus went to an even lower point than, than, what, than just washing feet. He was sacrificed on a cross that we might be saved. Matt Carter, in his commentary on John on this passage, he just defines humble service as the willingness to be inconvenienced for someone else's benefit. The willingness to be inconvenienced for someone else's benefit. And who greater than Jesus was inconvenienced for our benefit? What greater act than that? What greater selfless deed was done than Jesus' death on a cross, dying the death that we deserved to die? Standing in our place and then rising again putting not just his hands, but his whole body on the line in selfless service. And so Jesus shows us, he shows us how to serve out of a heart of steadfast love and these hands put to a selfless action. 
But this passage doesn't end there, for he also shows us that it includes an understanding in our head of both the magnitude and blessing of what Jesus did. Serving like Jesus involves an understanding in our head of both the magnitude and the blessing of what Jesus did. Now, the moment continues in verse 12. You see this here, the washing is over. Jesus has put his clothes back on. He's back at the table, and then he asks this question. Do you understand what I have done to you? He actually goes and tells them. where They're left uh, uh, speechless at this point. He tells them directly the significance that we read here, which I really appreciate. But we don't have any of their response. I imagine maybe they're in shock. They're like, I have clean feet. Jesus just did this. I, my mind is blown. What has just, I know we don't fully understand. Maybe they're, maybe they're not speechless. Maybe they're still you know, arguing about who is the best, who's the greatest. The other gospel writers talk about, even in these moments here, James and John are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. But Jesus tells them the magnitude of what is happening, just in his words, right? He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. A call to serving the church, one another, the brothers and sisters. He's given us an example. Truly, truly, you're not greater than me. I'm the master. I'm the teacher. You must do as I have done. And so a very simple lesson, but here's the magnitude of it. He turns everything that we know about greatness and leadership and service on its head. Both then and just dismantling the social norms and about who leads and, and even now. You know, leadership and, and, and greatness and this is about climbing the ladder. No, Jesus says it's about washing feet. It, 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 he, he totally changes. The magnitude is like he just reorients all our leadership thinking and our greatness thinking in every era and every time. But it also the magnitude here as he gets uh, to this is it's his death, his sacrifice that made it possible for us to serve in this way. Don't, don't, don't miss this, because here is the magnitude and also the blessing of serving, that his death, his sacrifice, unlocked the ability for us to do this. That's why he says in verse 17, you are blessed if you do it, if you serve in this, this way. It is not just a duty, something that we have to do, but rather because we are loved by God, we get to serve others. It's the difference in our thinking, in our life, between the gotta-do's and the get-a-do's. Bad English, I know. Those things that we just gotta do, that we have to do the duties of this life. No, because Jesus died on the cross, because he saved us, now we are freed up. Now we get to serve one another so so that when we're you know within the context of the church like parking cars or serving uh, and discipling kids or making meals for the people in our church we know the joy of Jesus as we do them 
we know the blessing of following Christ. And the beauty of it all is, is that these things all work together. It's our entire being. It's not just merely doing things like unbelievers can do, nice things for other people. But as our head and our heart and our hands come together in Christ-like service, it keeps it rolling in balance with joy so that the trip is, is, is enjoyable. So that the service is full of gladness like the Old Testament calls us to. But, but when things are out of balance, that's when things start to get shaky. right? That's when things in our life, as we're rolling along, start to get, get shaky. Now, just uh, hear this ex- example. Excuse me. Recently, actually on multiple occasions, uh, the tires on uh, Aaron's car, the tread began to separate. And so we're driving down the road, and uh, you maybe have had moments like these. Your hands are on the wheel. You're starting to go, and all of a sudden, you know, like your, your arm, uh, you know, fat starts to jiggle around. You ever had any of those? You start to feel it in your, in your steering wheel? That's just me. Am I, you know, starting to... My muscles are starting to atrophy. And, uh, you know, and, and it's happening. And so in that sense, you, if that happens as you're driving, you should know that there's probably something messed up with your tires. If you've ever had that happen, you're like, I don't know what's going on. Is my car going to fall apart? Likely a tire issue. Could be a few other things. I'm not a professional mechanic, but start there. And in both instances is because the tread was starting to separate on these on these these tires something was out of balance and so too in our own life as these things work together the, 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 there can be uh, bulges that form when we are out of balance when we are out of thing just think of it this way if our sense of action our sense of duty is is bulging it is out of out of balance where we're just doing uh, it, it because of the duty we're doing it because you know what i have to I, I, I just have to, but it's not out of a heart of love. It's not understanding the, the magnitude of what Jesus has done uh, for me. If we're just duty-bound, we're doing it over and over and over, we're, we're headed for a blowout. Your life is, is, is headed for a blowout. Things are getting shaky. But so, similarly, is if our sense of affection... If, if we're just emotionally driven out of like, okay, well, I love these people. I'm just going to go. We, it, it, but an emotion that also just can come and go. It can overflate, underdeflate. You know, sometimes we feel like it. Sometimes we don't. But if we're just being driven ahead by emotion without uh, any sort of sense of action or understanding in our head about the why of why, we, uh, of why we serve and the magnitude of what Jesus did, guess what? Our service is headed towards a blowout. Likewise, if our sense of understanding is bulging to where we have big theological heads, we can explain penal substitutionary atonement all day and debate with the best of theologians. You know, the big words for Jesus' death, his substitutionary death on the cross. We understand this. But we're not doing anything or loving anyone, then guess what? You're headed for a blow. Things are abundant, but, but rather as we mature in Christ, all three of these things must grow in proportion. Our theological understanding of the magnitude and blessing of what God has done, uh, uh, an increase and a multiplication of our love for God and other people, and an increased responsibility in doing things and serving uh, God's people with an increasing measure as we are maturing in all three of these proportionally. It keeps us rolling in our service like Jesus in a way that is healthy and full of joy. But maybe in your own life, your, your serving is feeling kind of shaky, or maybe you're stalled out, and, and so you need to do some heart examinations. Like, all right, well, what's off here? 
Am I serving like Jesus has demonstrated and called us to hear? Is there something going on in my head and heart or my hands that are uh, prohibiting me from this type of service? But as we do, as we roll along here, then we just get to be those joyful foot washers for the glory of God. Now, thank Jesus for laying out his expectations for us in this, right? You know, we have all kinds of expectations. A new school year starts, and we have expectations and hopes for what the school year would start. We start new jobs, and we ex- you know, have expectations. We get into a relationship. We expect things. We move into a new season of life. We have expectations. And praise Jesus that he would prepare and equip both his disciples and us for what a life of following him is like. Is If you've come and believed, now go and bless, starting with one another, the family of faith around you. And as we bless others, then we too in turn are blessed as we do it, just in the pleasure of knowing you pray with me and let's tell God thank you and ask for his help. God in heaven, here we are, your people, the undeserving recipients of this grace, those who have been eternally, immeasurably blessed because of your service, because of you, Jesus, your sacrifice on our behalf. And so we can't proceed uh, any further before we're just telling you, thank you, God. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this example. Thank you for laying out these expectations. But we also, God, we need your help. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that does do this convicting, revealing work in our, in our lives. And so we, we, we need your help even today, God. Maybe we are feeling out of balance. Maybe things are feeling a little shaky. Maybe we're just stalled out in this. Maybe our heart is disordered, and so we need your help. Help to put this into play this week. Help to love you. Help to love in the opportunities that are around us. Help us just see the areas that we can serve. Where is our need in this church and the people sitting right next to me? So, Lord, thank you. And please help. That's our prayer. Thank you for answering. Thank you for your love for us. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.